Hello everybody and welcome to the Reading Materials podcast, a podcast where two friends read a book and discuss it on the show. My name is Corrie. And my name is Lucia. And how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Busy. As I was just telling you, work is keeping me very busy. I think I've uh, just about managed to keep on top of reading everything I said I would read. I know I'm, <laughs> I say that even though we're delayed by a day <laughs> recording this because I hadn't finished the book, but overall I'm doing well. <laughs> good. How about you? Yes, I am good. I started work this week uh, on a part-time basis, fitting it around Edward, and I am finding it very difficult to think. I may have lost even more of my brain power than I normally have, so if I'm more incoherent than normal, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, there's not not too much more to report. It's very hot in England. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I'm really thankful that we bought an aircon unit earlier in the summer. So we have one room in the house that is a bearable temperature. And Edward and I just hang mm-hmm. out in here all day. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah, for those listening, we're recording this. It's the first week of September 2023. But Ireland and the UK is going through some sort of heat wave mm. which for me is it's fine because i know it's not as hot as it is where you are so we're just happy to have sunshine for a change um but yeah it's unseasonably warm it is very very warm it was 29 degrees celsius here today i don't know what that is in fahrenheit um but i do remember as a school kid You'd have quite a lot of rain in August and then you'd get to September and you'd be sitting in your classrooms in your new school year and looking out Mm -hmm. at this glorious weather thinking, (laughs) if only we were out in that. Maybe it only happened once or twice and it just sticks in my memory because it was so traumatic, you know. But in my mind, September is always the nice month. Okay. Yeah, I suppose it's the same as when we were at uni Mm. and exams would always start this the day that the nicest weather would start. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yeah. Would you like to introduce today's book? Indeed, I would. Uh, today's book is Sorcery of Thorns by Margaret Rogerson. And I completely forgot that we used to do a bio for our authors because the last couple of episodes have been authors we've covered before. So I did a very quick Google search in the past few few minutes. But Margaret Rogerson is a best-selling author. She has a degree from, I think, Miami University. Yes, Miami University in Cultural Anthropology. And she has published a number of young adult fantasy novels, including An Enchantment of Ravens and Vespertine. Sorcery of Thorns, I think, is her most recent one. And while it is a standalone, there is a follow-up novella that came out this year called Mysteries of Thorn Manor. And she lives in Ohio in the States. And yeah, that's that's all I found out about her. Anything 
Do you find out anything? Uh, she has a one-eyed cat whose name is Commodore. Yes. <laughs> and her books have been historically available in fairy loot boxes. Yes. I don't have any of her special editions. No. I think we probably found the same information. And I looked like three weeks ago, so this has nothing okay. to do with preparation. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So mm. I picked the book this week. Mm -hmm. Very simple reason. It's been on my radar for a while. It has quite good reviews online. 4.07 average rating on Goodreads. So I was just curious what it is about. Mm -hmm. And that is why I picked it for this season. That's that's Very good. that's it. No deeper no deeper reason than that. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I suppose we might as well put in the spoiler warning now. Mm-hmm. So we will be discussing this book in its entirety. So if anyone hasn't read it and doesn't want to be spoiled, then this is the time to stop, go read it, and maybe come back once you're done. Yes. Very good. Yes. This is the blurb from Goodreads. Sorcery of Thorns by Margaret Rogerson. All sorcerers are evil. Elizabeth has known that as long as she has known anything. Raised as a foundling in one of Ostermere's great libraries, Elizabeth has grown up among the tools of sorcery. Magical grimoires that whisper on shelves and rattle beneath iron chains. If provoked, they transform into grotesque monsters of ink and leather. She hopes to become a warden, charged with protecting the kingdom from their power. Then an act of sabotage releases the library's most dangerous grimoire. Elizabeth's desperate intervention implicates her in the crime, and she is torn from her home to face justice in the capital. With no one to turn to but her sworn enemy, the sorcerer Nathaniel Thorne, and his mysterious demonic servant, she finds herself entangled in a centuries-old conspiracy. Not only could the great libraries go up in flames, but the world along with them. As her alliance with Nathaniel grows stronger, Elizabeth starts to question everything she's been taught. About sorcerers, about the libraries she loves, even about herself. For Elizabeth has a power she has never guessed, and a future she could never have imagined. What did you think? I enjoyed it. It gets a solid four stars from me. There are a few mm -hmm. things that stopped it being five star but on the whole it was a great read mm -hmm. how about you i would be inclined to agree with that it's a solid four stars as well i can't quite put my finger on what's stopping me from giving it five stars but there was just that little bit of something missing but i enjoyed it a lot i think it's definitely one of the better ya fantasies that i've read recently so I would recommend it to people who like that genre. Mm -hmm. So yeah, overall really good, mm. but not quite five stars. Mm. Yes, I agree with you. I think I think one of the things that I really liked about it was that it wasn't about Fae and, you know, like, it felt like it was quite grounded. Sure, it was a different universe to the one that we know, but it was similar enough that there didn't have to be so much world building that... It was 5,000 pages long. Mm -hmm. It could just kind of get straight down to the story. 
Yeah, exactly. I also like the fact that it was kind of a historical novel because, yes, as you said, it's a fantastical world, so not quite the world that we know, but it also takes place in like 1830s or something, I think it says. So I like that element as well. Mm. Obviously, I think we'll talk about what that actually means for our main character a bit later on. But I like that. I like that the the magic system was easy enough to understand. It was unique compared to other books within the genre that we've read. It had elements of like dark academia, which I also really enjoyed. And I mean, it's a book about books mm-hmm. and we love books. So mm-hmm. yes, <laughs> that so, worked for me as well. Oh, the books were definitely one of my favorite things. So they're called grimoires and they all have personalities and Elizabeth, it can commune with the books in a way that nobody else can. And the explanation for that was she's a foundling and she spent so much of her, you know, childhood crawling amongst the book stacks that the magic rubbed off on her. And I just, it was, it was, it was magical. I really enjoyed it. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... In the world that is introduced in the book, there are six great libraries in the Ostermere country, or whatever you want to call it, Ostermere. And Elizabeth was left as an orphan on the doorstep of one of the libraries, and she was taken in by the director who trained her. And Elizabeth's greatest wish is to become a warden of the library. We meet her when she's 16 and a half-ish years old. And she doesn't quite fit in because she's been there since she was a baby, whereas most orphans would join at the age of 13. She only has really one friend. And yeah, what did you think of Elizabeth as the main character? I thought she was really interesting. I got vibes of Lyra from the Northern Lights. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that was at the beginning of the whole book. I was getting vibes of Northern Lights and also the Face Like Glass that we read way back Mm -hmm. in, like, I don't know, season one? Two? Two, I think, yeah. And also the uh, Empire of the Vampire. I was kind of getting from Elizabeth that she was a little bit like the main characters in all of those, where she was sort of left to be brought up by all of these scholars and she was the one who it was sort of destined that she was going to save the kingdom through these institutions um and i think that was one of the things that uh, until she actually left the great library i was a little bit like oh this isn't very original mm-hmm. and then as soon as the adventure actually started i was like oh okay cool i'm much more on board now mm-hmm. i think i liked her I definitely liked one of the other female characters more, and we'll come to her in a bit. I think the thing that stops me from being like I really loved Elizabeth was that she was a little bit naive, and of course she was, because she grew up in a library, mm-hmm. and her mm-hmm. worldliness is not not developed. <laughs> mm-hmm. How did you feel okay. about her? I liked her as well. I can see where you would see the similarities with Lyra. I didn't really put that together in my mind, but I completely agree now that you've mentioned it. It makes a lot of sense. Face like glass. I know what you're talking about. I don't quite see that similarity. 
Mainly because I think she's older than the protagonists in those two books. Mm. Like Lyra, I think, is only 12, 13, isn't she? Yeah. Whereas Elizabeth is already almost 17. So I wasn't making that connection, I think, mostly because of the age. But I do agree that, yes, when she's by herself and she's just kind of wandering the libraries and trying to stay out of trouble, it is very Lyra-esque. But I liked her. I thought she was smart. I liked that she learned how to fight and how to kind of look out for herself. She started out quite naive, but I think she adapted quite quickly. Eh, okay, there was a, a period of adjustment, but once she adjusted, <laughs> I think she did quite well. <laughs> all things considered. Mm. And I mean, even at the beginning, when she was protecting the library with the sword Demon Slayer, you know, I felt like that was probably something very out of character for her because she strikes me as the kind of person who really let, sticks to the rules. And it's her friend Katrine, who is the one who's always dragging her into trouble. So is Katrine the one that you preferred? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always like the troublemaker me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So why did you like Katrine that much? She was just a scamp, wasn't she? She was just mm. always scheming, always running around with all these plots in mind. And even when she's in the middle of figuring out how to trap Lord Ashcroft and screw up his plans and stop him from sabotaging all the libraries, she's also in the middle of exposing how evil the new warden or the new director of the library that they were together in is and she once Elizabeth leaves drags another apprentice into her schemes as her little sidekick without him even realizing I just thought she was yeah great yeah she was really good I I liked her sense of humor I liked the friendship between her and Elizabeth I was a little bit concerned at the beginning that she might betray her in some way so I'm glad that that didn't happen yeah overall I think she was a really great side character. It would be nice to find out more about her if there ever is a sequel. Yeah. I would quite like it if it was about Katrine. Yes, agreed. Absolutely agreed. I, I kind of finished the book wanting a sequel, but not wanting a sequel to Elizabeth. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you're right. Having, a, having one with Katrine would be great. <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of storyline, I guess the... The big first event is there's an attack on the library where Elizabeth is working. And maybe we should explain that in this world, there is magic. Magic exists. Demon exists. Demons exist. Um, people who can control magic are called sorcerers. I don't know if it's ever explicitly stated that they're only ever men. But I think we only meet male sorcerers. Isn't Lorelai a we? Oh, no, you're right. Lorelai's a demon. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think it ever is said. You're, you mm, are correct. Because it is, it is hereditary, so it's always the heir mm. to the bloodline who is a sorcerer. Mm. In any case, we meet Nathaniel quite early on, but we don't really think much of him. He's just a sorcerer whom Elizabeth meets mm. and tries to see if he has pointy ears because mm -hmm. Katrine claims that all sorcerers do. And... The books that are in the libraries are, as you said, they're called grimoires, and they are usually about magic or like sorcerers or demons, and so they're considered to be evil because they contain 
spells and mm. demonology. Yeah, wardens of the libraries are taught that sorcery is really, really evil. So when Elizabeth meets Nathaniel, she's expecting him to be a really horrid, awful person. Yeah. I don't really understand, though, where this is coming from. Because if it if it was so evil, then wouldn't it be outlawed? Or because, like, normal people in society seem to be quite happy to have sorcerers, you know, cast spells and make butterflies at the royal ball and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just in the libraries that they're considered to be so evil, and I think it's because the grimoires are written by sorcerers and they contain magic that the sorcerers can use, and a lot Mm -hmm. of them are particularly dangerous. Well, a few of them are particularly dangerous. A lot of them are just, like, you know have got characters of like an old man wagging his finger or a woman who likes tea in the afternoon or whatever. Um, And so the librarians or the wardens are taught that the sorcerers are really dangerous because if they didn't have some kind of suspicion of them, they might be more relaxed about letting them look at the dangerous grimoires and therefore making some of the more dangerous knowledge available to them. That's what I got from it anyway. Mm-hmm. And did you understand how the Malefict actually is created? Isn't it when they touch a human? I don't really know. Yeah, I I was a little bit confused because at first I thought that they're formed when they somehow manage to get out of their iron bindings, which they're... So iron is used to stifle or counteract magic so the grimoires are usually tied up in iron chains so when they get out of the chains i thought that's when they can manifest as malefics but at some point elizabeth is reading one of the grimoires in her room she's touching it everything is fine it's only when she falls asleep and a candle falls on it or something maybe is it when they're damaged Maybe, I don't know. I think that this wasn't really explained. I'm starting well. to have inklings of something happened to the Book of Eyes, which is the first one that escapes the library and gets Elizabeth all wrapped up in adventure. And I feel like something happens to one of its eyes, or maybe, yeah. I feel like there was always damage, but I may be just making that up. Okay. Yeah, that might make sense, because I thought that it was when they escaped, but if that was the case then when all the books escape at the end of the book, they should have all turned into malefics, but they obviously didn't. Yeah. In any case, so the Book of Eyes becomes a malefic. The director of the library is killed, and Elizabeth is the only one who wakes up when this is happening. She fights against this demonic creature. She manages to win. But because she is the only surviving witness, she's immediately considered a suspect. And Nathaniel comes to take her to be judged in front of the... What are they called? The co... co co-something of sorcerers. I can't remember. Committee? committee the leaders of the sorcerers basically and that's where the real adventure begins so tell us about nathaniel 
So Nathaniel is a sorcerer, and he is, oh, I don't remember his surname, Thorn, Nathaniel Thorn, mm-hmm. and he is the heir to the Thorn family, and they were the great sorcerers, and it's extremely important that he accepts his magic and marries and has a baby so that there's a new heir because he needs to have access to the grimoire that was written by the Thorns, and it's a very high level, therefore very dangerous grimoire. He is the most eligible bachelor in the land. Um, He's 18 and very young for being this man who is expected to marry and produce an heir as quickly as the whole world seems to expect him to, although I suppose given that it's set when it is, that was perfectly normal in the 1830s, 1800s. Elizabeth is really suspicious of him at first. As you say, she she puts her hands in his hair to feel for horns, thinking she's never going to see him again. And then, of course, he's the next sorcerer that she sees. And he's generally quite a good guy. He's the one who creates the butterflies for the royal ball. And his big thing seems to be like illusion magic. So he's creating this scene for the royal ball and Elizabeth is surprised at how sort of wastefully he uses his magic like at some point she comments on did you just use your magic to pack my trunk or something along those lines and of course Elizabeth and Nathaniel fall for each other (laughs) yeah I liked him he had charm he he was he was a hero without being a hero like he was a i suppose an unwilling unwilling like he just wanted to kind of hide away in his study and do his own thing and ignore his heritage and what is expected of him and mm-hmm. it takes elizabeth to make him care about something other than his i suppose misery because his father was killed I can't remember how his father died or the circumstances. Mm -hmm. But his mother and younger brother also died just before his father. Yep. So he's alone in his mansion. I can't really think of much more to say about him. I think I said more than I really was anticipating I would. Yeah, I liked Nathaniel. I thought he was quite witty. I thought he was quite funny. Obviously, he has a troubled past, as you say. Uh, When he was 10, 11-ish years old, his mother and younger brother died in some tragic accident, and his father didn't handle it very well. And the power of the Thorn family is necromancy. That's it. So... His father tried to raise the mother and brother from the dead, Mm -hmm. but it all went a bit wrong. Nathaniel was there in the room when it happened as well, Mm -hmm. so I guess he saw his mother and brother as zombies or something, and then the magic kind of took over his father, so he was murdered by Silas the Mm -hmm. demon and again nathaniel saw this as it happened yeah so 
yeah, he lost his whole family by the age of 12 and he's been living by himself with this demon who killed his father in his house. I think he kind of enjoys the attention a little bit that he gets from society, but he treats it kind of like a joke. He's not really interested in doing what society wants him to do, but he doesn't mind causing a little bit of scandal. So there's a lot of mention of, of troubles that he's gotten into, but we never get the full details. Mm. Um, so I can understand why he's kind of locked away. And I think he's really afraid of his power and he's really afraid that he's going to become like his father, which is why I think he, he doesn't want to form attachments with people either. And yeah, I liked that as much as he was heroic in the sense of he did help Elizabeth in the fight against the big evil, it wasn't the typical, you know, damsel in distress. He wasn't always saving her. They were quite equal. And maybe sometimes even she was saving him more than he was saving her. Yeah. It kind of actually now it reminds me of, is it Lila? And Kel from A Darker Shade of Magic. Yes. They have that kind of dynamic as well. Yes. Oh, gosh, I'd completely forgotten about that series. Yeah. So I'm sensing kind of similar vibes. Yeah, actually, you're right, I think actually. about it a little bit. So I like that. Nice. But yeah, like generally, I think he was a nice character. I, I liked the way that the romance developed. He was, it was kind of the typical, you know... Oh, I don't. I don't want to spend any time with you. I. I. I don't trust myself, so I'm just gonna lock myself away in mm. my study and and hope that you'll go away. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, overall, good, good, mm. male protagonist, but still not my favorite character. Mm. So my favorite character was Silas. Go on, tell me why. The demon. So, I guess sorcerers can summon demons and. I didn't fully understand if actually having summoned a demon and having it be your servant is what actually gives them their magical abilities because it feels like when Silas is banished and even when Lorelei, who is Ashcroft's demon, is banished, they seem to lose their their powers. Yeah, so I think they have to have a demon. They have to have a demon mm. to be sorcerers. I think the demons give some of their magic to the sorcerers in exchange for part of their lives because yeah. at a certain point Silas is killed and then in order to get him back they have to go through the summoning and Nathaniel has originally bargained 20 years mm -hmm. of his life in return for Silas and when Silas comes back, he wants 30 years of Nathaniel's life and Elizabeth is completely horrified by that. So she says, take 20 years of Nathaniel's life and 10 years of mine. And there's a certain point where Silas clarifies to her that she's not getting anything in return. So mm -hmm. I think it yeah. is that sort of contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it seems... I don't know if it's always the case, but at least in the case of the Thorn family, Silas has been serving the Thorns for hundreds of years. Mm. So generation after generation, as soon as the current sorcerer dies, the heir will summon Silas, make a new bargain mm. with him, and get that magical power in return. So, 
Silas has been bound to Nathaniel since Nathaniel was 12. And at the beginning when we meet him, he appears like a really kind of like a young boy with silvery hair. And you immediately get the sense that there's something off about him. And he seems to have some kind of mind control or like a glamour that he can place on Elizabeth so that she forgets about the fact that she's realized that he's not fully human, which I really liked. Yes, I am not like she, vigorously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she notices that his eyes are yellow, but within a moment, she's completely forgotten. But she's like, no, there's there's something off about him, but I don't remember what it is. And then she's running through the woods and he just appears out of nowhere and carries her home and she doesn't remember the next day. So he's very mysterious. Mm -hmm. And obviously we're meant to believe, and he also points out on numerous occasions, that demons are selfish beings. He's only helping Nathaniel because of the bargain, because he gets 20 years of his life. But that as soon as he is unbound, he will be selfish again and he won't be helping. But we get the sense that this is not the case. He's formed an actual connection with Nathaniel. And they have a really... Almost like an equal relationship, a loving relationship, which I really, really liked. Mm. What did you think of Silas? Yes, I really liked him as well. His, again, drawing parallels to other books, he really reminded me of the villain in The Da Vinci Code, who had white hair and he was an albino, I think. Mm -hmm. Or had albinism, I don't know what the politically correct way of saying that is. I went onto Google and I googled Da Vinci Code characters and the guy that I'm thinking of in the book is called Silas. So ah. that, I think for me, obviously it's really difficult for anybody to ever come up with something completely original, but when, it, when things draw such strong parallels for me with other things, with other p elements of other stories, it really brings me out of the book. So that kind of mm. distracted me for a little bit mm -hmm. but then Silas transforms into a white cat to follow Elizabeth and that's when I started being a bit more on board with his character as an ori more original which is funny sorry to jump in because that now reminds me because I'm rereading Crescent City yeah and one of the demon princes appears as a white cat yep yeah. Well, like I say, it's going to be impossible to ever write something because A, we're so well read, and B, I mean, there are so many books and characters, and you've got to get your inspiration from somewhere. Um, but, but apart from that, I thought he was a really good character as well. I was really suspicious of him at the beginning. I really thought mm -hmm. he was too good to be true. The way that they get summoned is you have to know their real name. So Silas is his nickname, and Silariathus, something along Silariathus, is his demon name. And in order to summon him, you have to know that. So I think that's how it gets passed down from generation to generation. And new sorcerers can become new sorcerers by finding out the name of a demon, which, mm -hmm. as it turns out, is why the rest of the book is happening. Um, yeah. And when they mentioned that, that bit all happens after he's been killed and they have to resummon him. And he said that you must never call me by my real name. 
um, or you must never release me or something because otherwise my true form will be leashed upon, unleashed upon the world and, you, and I will immediately kill Nathaniel because, because I'm a demon. So mm-hmm. as soon as that was said, I was like, oh, okay, this is how Nathaniel dies and it's going to be one of those weird books where the protagonist gets killed or the, yeah, the protagonist, or one, one of them. And then as it turned out, like you say, he had formed a connection with Nathaniel, so when he does eventually get unleashed as the big bad demon, he uses his um, strength to take down the big bad. Um, and it was completely believable in the way that it happened for me. I didn't come away from it thinking, oh, what a. Of course that was going to happen. What a cliche, you know? And you know how much I mm-hmm. like doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I don't think I ever really suspected him. I always had a bit of an inkling that he's probably going to turn out to be a good guy, let's say in quotation marks. So it didn't really surprise me that the book ended the way that it did, but I still really enjoyed it. It didn't bother me that it didn't come completely as a surprise because as you say, it felt believable. Like she had built that relationship, that connection between them throughout the whole book he was kind of the butler, but he was also kind of a like a parent figure. He mm-hmm. took care of Nathaniel when he had nightmares. And when Nathaniel has nightmares, his magic kind of manifests inside the house. So whatever he's dreaming about sometimes actually happens, which is why all the servants have also left. And Silas is the only one who's still there. And... He takes care of him. He heals him after he's been wounded and all these things. So, yeah, I just really liked him. And he's also kind of funny. They have a bit of banter. And he he notices things. Like, he notices the relationship that's building between Elizabeth and Nathaniel. And he's kind of gives them their privacy. And, <laughs> and he welcomes her into the house. And he saves her a few times as well. So... Mm. I could kind of tell that he was good underneath it all. Like, it didn't feel like this is something he would do just because he's the servant. Because he was never really explicitly told that this is something he should be doing. So, yeah, I thought he was great. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think think he was just so good that I was like, he's just too good to be true. But... I, I, there was one bit that I really enjoyed where he's getting Elizabeth or Elizabeth realizes that she's been undressed and she's horrified because Silas, who presents as a man, has undressed her. And he's mm-hmm. just like, I just don't see you that way. Actually, you're kind of disgusting to me. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about the the main villain. Okay, so the main villain is Lord or Baron Ashcroft. And he's the Minister of Magic. He's a he is a not very nice man. So he he's the one who is sabotaging all the libraries and releasing the malefics. And the whole point is to do a summoning of the King of Demons, I think. And in order to do so, he needs to find out this demon's name, which he's trying to do through a grimoire that I think there are a couple of copies of or three or four or anyway he has one and he, and he oh so because he's the minister of magic Elizabeth has taken to him and he's all I forgive you for 
being at the murder of the director, clearly you didn't do it, whereas before she had been accused of doing it. And then she fights off a load of demons with Nathaniel and is congratulated for saving a village and all is forgiven. And then he keeps her as a guest in his mansion and starts putting her into under an enchantment, I suppose. The point being that he's trying to find out how she was awake because the whole of the library should have been enchanted asleep on the night that the attack happened and for whatever reason Elizabeth wasn't and as we find out later it's because she has a resistance to magic as a result of crawling around in all the library stacks and inhaling the dust from the books or inhaling the magic. So he is basically using magic to try break into her brain and find out what she knows because he's the one doing it and his ultimate goal is to summon this demon because then he can make a bargain with this king of demons so that he becomes i i don't know attached to baron ashcroft is it baron oberon lord ashcroft i think And he's got loads and loads and loads of demons. So his main sort of, like, higher demon, they're the ones who feed off the sort of life essence of sorcerers, and they make bargains with sorcerers in order to receive their payment when the sorcerer dies, and that's how they feed. Whereas loads of lesser demons also exist, and they feed on, I guess, less savoury things. Mm -hmm. And... He has control over loads. He's got all these servants at his mansion who are these lesser demons. And then he's also got Lorelei, who is his main sort of higher demon. And his aim is to summon the king of demons, whose name is Archon. Mm-hmm. What happens is he turns grimoires into malefics and sets them loose, assuming that they are going to be killed, and when they're killed or destroyed, a massive amount of power is released, and therefore it's like when they do a summoning for an ordinary demon, they light a candle in the shape of a pentagram, and that's Mm -hmm. the layout of the libraries. The main reason he's doing it is because it's kind of hereditary, so... The Ashcrofts and the Thorns, I think like 200 years ago, I may have Mm -hmm. pulled that out of the air, were contemporaries and you had the Ashcrofts who were busy building all the libraries and designing them. So they designed this into the layout of the libraries. And then there's a third guy whose name I don't remember. Yeah. And he's the one who has this grimoire that contains the name of Archon. And that's... This has all been a very circular way of me saying that's what Elizabeth finds out. And then because Elizabeth has this affinity with books, she can also access the grimoire, which is the one that she's studying on the bed. And she does that by stealing from the the Grand Library, (laughs) which is an enjoyable little jaunt. And the way that Ashcroft is doing it is rather than actually going to the libraries, he is possessing the directors of the libraries. So where Elizabeth thinks that her director has been killed by an intruder who has also released the Book of Eyes and turned it into a malefic. Actually, the director 
Elizabeth's director has been possessed by Ashcroft, released the grimoire, turned it into a malefic, and then I think either the malefic kills her or Ashcroft mm-hmm. kills her. I-, I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> a little bit, but you've explained pretty much the entirety of his villainous plot, so... <laughs> He does eventually summon Archon, who is then like, yes. puny human, why would I care about your life force? I'm not interested in you. You've made a yeah. grave error. Yeah. In a move that surprised absolutely no one, I think. Yeah. And then he, <laughs> is, for well, he, he is surprised because he's like, but this yes. is what I was like. This is my heritage. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is my life's work. Yeah. And... It's terribly disappointing for him. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. For me, Ashcroft was suspicious from the moment he (laughs) turned up. Yeah. (laughs) Because he, you know, you said that Silas was almost too good to be true. For me, it was Ashcroft. As soon as he turned up and he's so jovial and he's so understanding and he's like, oh, Elizabeth, of course we, we... you're of course you're innocent you know because you've saved the town and come I'm going to take you in as this you know benefactor I'm gonna shower you with clothes that you've never had before and like introduce you to high society and I'm just thinking oh there's something fishy about this man and you find out almost immediately that yes indeed everything is not as it seems which I also appreciated that we didn't draw this out Mm. within a couple of chapters we were like oh yeah no this guy is the bad guy Mm. And he's basically trying to control Elizabeth via Lorelai, his high demon, who should be able to mind control Elizabeth. But because she is resistant, she's actually aware of everything that's happening. And I think this is coming up to something that you mentioned when we were recording Hellbent. So Elizabeth manages at some point to speak to someone from the outside world. I don't remember the circumstances. Oh, she she faints or something, or she pretends to faint, and so they bring in a physician. And she tells the physician everything that has been happening to her. And the physician is taking notes, seemingly believing everything she's saying, but she, she, she sees that he's writing, oh, hysterical, oh, reads too many books because she is a woman in the 1830s. And so, tell us, Corey. What happens to poor Elizabeth at this point? She is committed to a mental asylum. So Ashcroft has this thing that he can do where he raids a person's mind. And in most people, it means that he can get right down to their very last secrets and leaves them as a complete lunatic, destroys their mind. Mm -hmm. But because of Elizabeth's special abilities and the way that she can resist him she manages to conceal the secret of why she wasn't asleep and also mm-hmm. not lose her mind completely by sort of merging memories as he's going through them so this sort of assessment is done in the lead up to that so that once he has ransacked her brain he can then have her committed to an asylum and she's yeah mm-hmm. like you say they say she's hysterical and he hosts her at his mansion and she's put out into the gardens with an escort and uh, the ordinary people of the city 
come and look at her and giggle and laugh at how crazy she is because she notices things that normal people wouldn't and she doesn't have airs and graces because she grew up in a library so she doesn't know etiquette or manners or anything like that Mm -hmm. and it's all kind of it's really 1830s it's really like any woman who didn't conform to what you wanted them to do or to be they were like you are hysterical you are mental you are to be committed to an asylum Mm -hmm. and they try to do that to her and she manages to escape and fight it all off but it is just it just may it still makes me so angry i mean on the whole to my knowledge in this country things like that don't happen anymore women clearly have a lot more autonomy and they are very much less likely to be committed as a hysterical woman to an asylum mm-hmm. But as somebody who has struggled with mental health in the past, I mean, I would have been one of those women who had been committed to an asylum just based off what I went through in my final year at uni, where I just I was just directionless and I didn't really know what what I wanted or what was going on. And my mental health really took a a bad turn. And so I just it's a very clever plot device. Mm -hmm. And of course we can't change history and we need to acknowledge that that kind of thing happened. But for some reason it just really annoys me that we still fall back on that as a trope. Mm -hmm. Like, it just feels to me like really lazy writing. It may just be, that's just my own personal feelings about it. You know, who knows why people do things and it's, it's... Obviously, I know probably a lot more about it than a lot of people do, just because of my own history. And also, I live quite close to the Glenside Museum, which used to be a mental asylum here. And I mean, it was women who were single, like like spinsters were sometimes committed to asylums just because people didn't know what else to do with them. Mm-hmm. Or like a rich husband would decide he was sick of his wife, so he'd get her committed to an asylum, so he could just carry on and do whatever he, whatever he wanted. And some yeah. people clearly will have been very mentally unwell, but they were just the abuse that went on in these places was horrific, and it's alluded to in the book. You know, mm. she's kind of told, mm-hmm. "Oh, you're going to go to this lovely place, and you're going to have a lovely stay," and then she meets Mercy, who is a maid, I believe, in the asylum, and she's like, "You don't want to go in there. It's not." nice at all yeah that's my piece Mm -hmm. yes i see where you're coming from it reminded me a little bit of the Ten Thousand doors of january because i think she's also committed to an asylum there for much the same reason as elizabeth is so i think for me it didn't it bothered me in the sense of what you've just said It was a real thing that used to happen. I really wanted to Google when did it stop happening, but I completely forgot. So the reasoning annoyed me. The fact that it was just clearly to get rid of her, to silence her, to brand her as a hysterical young woman and shut her away in this horrible place. So that's why it annoyed me, but I think it worked as well, because I feel like there was a lot of social commentary that was woven into the story. So I think this was just what she was trying to do and was just using a real example. Yeah, I think it all starts with that doctor who, you know, 
he starts right from the get-go. She's telling him the truth of what is happening to her, and it's a really bad thing. And okay, it involves magic. In this world, it might not have involved magic. It might have Mm. been, you know, my husband is gaslighting me, and nobody would ever believe it was happening because it's a man. Why could that happen? Yeah, It just starts right from there. And, And then by having a medical person question you, the person then starts questioning themselves and so it's a it's a self-perpetuating mm. cycle where yeah. eventually you don't know what's real and what isn't because you so many people are telling you you're mental you don't know what's happening mm-hmm. and it was a very clever way for ashcroft to try dispose of a problem which yeah. obviously didn't work the one thing that did annoy me slightly was that elizabeth goes to the asylum and she manages to escape with the help of Mercy, who is this maid. And she escapes one of Ashcroft's lesser demons, whose name I can't remember. He's a butler of some description. Yeah. And she walks out and she goes, oh, well, Ashcroft's not going to bother trying to find me because why would he care? He thinks I'm mad. But I really didn't buy that because if I were Ashcroft and I knew there was somebody who might potentially know something about what is going on, who has escaped Mm -hmm. and I don't know where they are, you better believe that I would be trying to find her. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe he was trying to find her. We don't really find out. We just kind of get Elizabeth's assurances that he won't look for her Mm. so maybe he was looking for her or maybe he just didn't consider her to be a threat because even if she told someone you know what (laughs) what had already happened would probably happen again as in she would eventually wind up at the asylum anyway or she would wind up with him because they would take him take her to him and then he would put her there so i think he just maybe he just didn't see her as a threat Mm. at all yeah true and she i suppose she was a woman as well exactly yeah yeah so i think what i am really glad is that we don't spend too much time with the asylum yes. as in we don't actually have her committed and go through something traumatic and horrible she manages to run away almost immediately yeah so thank goodness for that one small thing it just as you were describing everything that had happened so far It's also kind of giving me the structure of the storytelling kind of reminds me of Harry Potter because you have like chapters of calm when not much is happening and then you have like a mini adventure Mm. and then nothing really happens and you have a mini adventure. So you have, you know, you introduce us, we get introduced to Elizabeth, everything is fine, then there's the attack and then she's traveling and then there's Ashcroft and then nothing, nothing and then the asylum So there's always kind of like chapters of downtime Mm. and then one or two chapters of something exciting. So yeah, that's true. But don't don't scare me like by doing a critical analysis of Harry Potter like that. (laughs) I'm joking. But there's I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I think it works really well. (laughs) It's just not something I've ever thought about, you know. But you're you're completely right. (laughs) I, I did want to just say it amused me that we had another mercy in this book. Because we had a Mercy in Hellbent, didn't we? Did we? Yeah, she was the roommate of Alex's. Oh, gosh, yeah. 
<laughs> oh no, so okay. But you know, it's funny. Like you mentioned all these things, and even I'm picking up similarities to other things. But it didn't really bother me. And I was having this discussion with Tatiana from the Bookish Banter podcast because the books that I was reading with her for that podcast, it really bothered me that it reminded me of other things. Yeah. Whereas this time, I was just happy to go along with it. It's like, oh yeah, okay, yes, it's similar to X, Y, Z, but it do I don't care because it's different enough. So yeah, it's funny how that happens. It, yeah, it is interesting. I think maybe because I'm listening to the books now, I've got a little bit more thinking space as I'm listening, if that makes sense. Because I'm not having to put mm -hmm. like concentrated effort into actually reading. Maybe. Is there anything else that we've not talked about? The sword? I mean, we mentioned it briefly, but Elizabeth has a special sword that she inherited from the director. It's called the Demon Slayer. And it seems to have some kind of magical ability. Mm. I liked its inclusion. I don't really understand it perfectly well, but, you know, it worked. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I liked it as well. It showed that the, the director had a sort of connection with Elizabeth. She was the one who took this foundling in. And she leaves the sword to Elizabeth in her will. But then the new warden of the library... Mm. Is like, no, you can't have it. And he's the one who basically accuses Elizabeth of being the one who killed the director. He's not a very nice fellow. No, he's not. And he's exposed by Katrine. Yes. By the end of the book for having greatly abused his power. Yes. The other thing is then, I guess, the final showdown. So you mentioned that there is this grimoire that has the name of the demon and Ashcroft is trying to get the name. Elizabeth... Let me rephrase. The man who wrote the grimoire, he lived like 200, 300 years ago. So same lifetime as the predecessors of Ashcroft and Nathaniel. Well, he was driven crazy, kind of, by Ashcroft's forefather. And he hid a part of his consciousness or part of his memories inside the grimoire. So we meet him as a character. He's existing there. Mm. But he's very not trusting of anyone who, who wants to get any information from him. But Ashcroft does eventually get his name, or the name of the demon. And there is an attack on another library. How did you like that showdown? So that's the first kind of big battle, and then it bleeds into the next battle, but... That's where it gets revealed that he is possessing... Yeah. Possessing directors. And I I quite enjoyed it. They have to... Is it, It's a candle that they burn? Or something? Nathaniel and Elizabeth and Silas to get to that library because it's like three or four days gallop across the land. They have to drink some blood of the, the guy in the grimoire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. So that... They do that and they go there and they start breaking into the library... And they're basically trying to stop Ashcroft from getting in. Mm -hmm. And they know that there's somebody there, but they see that it's the director. And it's only in the last few steps as he goes to release the grimoire that they click on what is happening. Mm -hmm. And then the grimoire is released and it turns into a malefict. And there's this huge battle and everybody get well, Nathaniel gets hurt. They manage to escape by drinking the rest of the potion blood and magicking themselves away, leaving 
I think they kill the Malefict because its head is in the portal with them when they travel or something along those lines. I really enjoyed it up to the get out of jail free card of transporting themselves away with the blood. Mm-hmm. I wanted there to be more of a journey to mm-hmm. and from, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It feels like a really abrupt ending to something that had actually quite a lot of lead up. Yeah, I think I agree. I think um, it was very abrupt. It was very convenient, mm. but but also kind of cleverly written in. I, I don't see how else they could have gotten away. Mm. Like it felt, it feels like it would have just kept on dragging if they were still trying to battle against a malefic. So I did think at some point I was a little bit like, this is where they're going to unleash Silas as his true demon form, mm-hmm. and then of course that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I was less convinced by it than I was by the real big battle. So do you mm-hmm. want to tell us about okay. the real big battle? So the real big battle is taking place at the Royal Library, which is in the middle of all the other libraries, basically, that are arranged kind of in a pentagram. And Ashcroft is at the Royal Library and he's summoning Archon, the, the king demon, the wardens and the directors of the library are trying to... Well, some of them are trying to fight against him, but not very successfully. So Elizabeth, Nathaniel, and Silas manage to get in. And the books start speaking to her. Or like she feels some kind of presence within the library that is not demonic, but it is magical. And it's basically all the books. So all the grimoires and the books within the royal library have a personality or have some kind of a, let's call it a soul or something, they have a consciousness, an understanding of what's happening. And they all want to be unleashed so that they can protect the library alongside Elizabeth, Nathaniel, and Silas. So as they're running to Ashcroft, they unchain all the grimoires. Even like the really let's call them evil ones, like the level 8, level 9, whatever's grimoires that she had previously interacted with that looked really creepy, that would, like, take your face and stitch it into the into the pages, or, like, that would show you what you fear the most. So all of these grimoires sacrifice themselves, basically, to close off all the openings, all the doors into the other world, which is where the demons are coming from. I didn't fully understand how this was happening, but I appreciated the sentiment and the message. (laughs) I think that was really nice, but I I don't get why they were doing it. I guess it's supposed to give the message of they're not all as evil as everyone thinks they are, maybe. I think that it was... Elizabeth has this real affinity with the books because of how she grew up. And the way that the portal is opened is by destroying malefics and therefore huge amounts of energy being released. And so there's like a portal that has been, or a gap between worlds that has Mm -hmm. been opened. And the grimoires from the Royal Library are sacrificing themselves by jumping into the portal, basically, and dissolving and the energy from them is going to heal the and try close the portal. My understanding was that they were just so pleased to be able to do something to help save the library and to actually have a purpose because otherwise they were all just being stored in these dusty shells, always being ignored by everybody except Elizabeth. And that's why they were doing it. 
I really enjoyed the reason I can describe that as clearly as I did is because I really enjoyed the imagery of that of them all sort of jumping in and you know turning into I think it was sort of like zipping up or mm. re repatching the rent in the worlds yeah 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 so that's what the books are doing and then Silas's big moment comes because Ashcroft obviously can't control the demon. The demon doesn't want to make a bargain with him at all. It's escaping the summoning circle, and it will unleash itself on the world. Nathaniel is unconscious, so again, he's the damsel in this scenario, and Elizabeth is still standing fighting. And she kind of comes to the conclusion that if they're going to die anyway, because this mega demon is going to destroy the world it won't really matter if she unleashes silas so she sets silas free and there is a moment of struggle between silas and himself and his i suppose true demonic self mm -hmm. where it looks like he's going to kill nathaniel and nathaniel kind of regains consciousness and he's like it's okay silas i understand what you have to do and then Silas sacrifices himself and he says that he can take the demon back to the other world and keep him there. And so that is what he does. So now Silas is gone. So how did you like Silas's big moment? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think by this point expected that he wouldn't kill Nathaniel. Mm. So, you know, wasn't surprised but was pleased when he didn't. And I was, it was ruined a little bit for me because I had read a blurb of the sort of sequel novella where it said mm. Nathaniel, Elizabeth and Silas are getting used to their mm. new lives or something along those lines. So I knew that he didn't mm -hmm. really die. And I think that kind of ruined it for me a lot because I was... You know, I would have been so like, oh my god, this author has had the strength to kill off this amazing character, and they're just mm -hmm. gone. I think I felt a little bit like I did in Hellbent when Daniel died, but he didn't really die. Yeah. Okay. I think I, I think I had also read the blurb, so I knew that he would come back. So even the first time when he's quote-unquote killed by Ashcroft... Because I knew that he would be back in the next book, I kind of expected that he would come back. Mm. But I was... I did like the fact that we don't see him actually being brought back. Yeah. It ends on a cliffhanger. We kind of get the feeling that that's where we're going, that she's managing to summon him again. But we don't get the details of it, so... Yeah. I like that she left it open-ended in that way. Yeah. But I don't mind... I didn't mind knowing that he would be back. I think the sacrifice still worked for me because I think the message was still there. So, yeah, I thought it was fine. Yeah. Anything else? I liked the keys. So every apprentice mm -hmm. is given a set of keys and the more senior they are, the more keys they have that give them access to more and more things. And that's one of the things that Elizabeth is really upset about is when she's removed from the libraries, her keys are taken away from her. And then at the end, she's given a set of keys and asked to come back. And she's not sure what to do because she wants Nathaniel in her life. But they tell her that it doesn't matter. She can have, she can keep the keys anyway. I quite like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought there was quite a lot of growth in her character mm. by the end. She was quite naive and I think she just didn't know 
as you said, anything about the outside world. She had an idea of what it means to be good, what it means to be evil, based on her very basic experiences within the library. But if nothing else, I think this book was very good at introducing Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. And realizing that by the end, sorcerers can be good people, because, I mean, Nathaniel is inherently good, even yeah. though he's a sorcerer. Even demons can be good. So I liked it. Will you read the novella? I have to admit, it's not at the very, very top of my list just because there are so many things that I want to read at the moment because as well as podcast books, I've also started another big historical-type magic-y thing. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to read it at some point, but it's not top of my priority list. How about you? Same. Yeah. Same. I think we have a lot of books coming up. Yes. If I find the time at some point, I would like to come back to it. Yeah. I'd like to see more of the characters. Yeah, definitely. If there was a full sequel, I would be much more inclined to be like, yes, I really want to find out what happens in another adventure. Mm -hmm. I don't, I get, I'm a little bit sort of disinclined to read fringe novel novellas just because of my experience with the Outlander ones which I didn't enjoy as much as I enjoyed mm -hmm. the main series and I could have probably done without them but mm. yeah huh, it's funny I'm kind of the opposite I think the fact that it's a novella and not a full-length sequel is what's drawing me to it because I know it'll be short it'll be easy to get through I quite like the fact that so far I, I haven't heard if she's going to write a proper sequel to this but I quite like that it's a standalone mm. and the novella is just kind of like a mini adventure on the side as almost like a bonus mm -hmm. because, yeah, I struggle now with longer series because they feel like too much of a commitment and I get dis really disappointed if I reach the stage in a series where I'm like, I don't want to keep reading anymore. Mm. So I'm glad that this was, at the time of recording, a standalone. Yes, very good. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think I have anything else really to say. Very good. The next book for the podcast will most likely be Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were going to read something else, but you changed it. We were. We were going to read... Oh, do I remember what it was? Hang on. We were going to read Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss and the Fight for Trans Equality by Sarah M McBride, who is... The, I think, the first transgender American senator. And mm -hmm. I had put it on the list because it appeared in a an article that I read about books by transgender or queer authors that you must read. It wasn't until I went to read it that I saw that it was written by a state senator and that it had a lot of politics in it. And mm -hmm. I really struggle with politics because I find it very... I find it one of those things where I always go and vote, but I don't believe that my voice really says very much when it comes to democracy, although I believe in democracy. My feelings about politics are extremely complicated, and I don't know what I think half the time. So mm -hmm. I just... That's why I didn't want to read the book for the podcast, because I was just like, the whole podcast episode will just be me hedging and getting myself confused and saying things and then not really knowing if I mean them, because it's just, mm -hmm. I just find politics so confusing and depressing. Mm. So that's the reason. I hear you. 
Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But if anybody has read it and would like to disabuse me of the notion that it is full of politics and persuade me to read it otherwise, I might be willing to maybe do it a bit differently. But I think it's basically Mm -hmm. like a memoir. And I mean, I tried to read Obama's memoir and I just... And I tried to read Gorbachev, Gorbachev, you know, the American president who ended the the American president, not the American president, the uh, Soviet Union. Soviet, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, like, just political jargon and names that I don't understand. And I sometimes even get confused between what is a conservative and what is Labour and what is a Democrat. And, like, it's all just, it's all just too, yeah. Too much for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. No <laughs> problem. <laughs> uh, so, well, in that case, thank you for this in-depth discussion of a sorcery of thorns. Yep. You're and welcome. Thank you. We'll see you next time. We will talk next time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.